There are different ways of looking at authenticity. It can also be specific to the situations we're in. The energy, the tone, all of those things that I take for granted when I speak English, I have to work to bring them into German in order for people to experience me. There was a great Charlie Parker quote, the great saxophonist who said, you practice, 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 and then you forget all that stuff and play. Hello, Clever Heavis Tribe, and welcome back to season six. Today, we are with another American expat, but he's been here almost as long as I've been alive. So we're going to learn a lot today. <laughs> but let's start with that, because now you've been an expat, I think, the longest we've had on the show over 20 years. So why did you decide to move to Germany in the first place? And what has that been like seeing things change? I, I promise you I'm going to keep these answers short so you can go for, for some depth later. But essentially, my ex-wife is German, and I met her on my first trip to Ghana, and we did a long-distance relationship thing for about a year. The idea was it would be nice to live in the same country, and we picked Germany. We made it through, I made it through. So even after the marriage, um, I realized how comfortable I am in Germany. It really fits my personality. That's, that's pretty much why I've been here 22 years. Hard to believe. The biggest thing is to be willing to immerse, to be willing to go through not knowing what you're doing, not understanding, and uh, having friends to help you debrief and learn along the way. Every day is a learning opportunity. Being willing to laugh at yourself when a six-year-old corrects your German and the six-year-old is right. You know, all those kinds of things that can get in the way when you're concerned about saving face and all of that. We just have to embrace that we're going to be wrong a lot early on. And once that is done and you focus on learning, it gets better. You find your niche, you meet people, and I've met some wonderful people who we only share German as a common language because they come from other countries as well and had wonderful relationships. I'm pretty fluent when I'm not worried about the mistakes I know I'm making. You know, I have a master's degree, and so I have a, a vocabulary in English that goes with that, and I don't have a vocabulary in German that goes with that. So I notice it, that I'm struggling to reach the same level of communication as I have in English. And I just have to accept that. A lot of expats, especially if they're English speakers, they get stuck at being an English trainer. So how can they level up as you have to be able to work in the language of the country and become more of a specialist? There are a couple things. I still train mostly in English, so I don't want to misrepresent what I do. I do train mostly in English. I do co-train often in German. I'm really concerned about how deeply I can understand my training participants and not only what they say, but what they don't say. So again, it's understanding the shading, the tone. So that's the the general approach i don't do a lot of lecture so most of the time we're doing experiential training so this being able to interpret well ask the right question help people see themselves in, in a mirror 
first, if we're talking about moving from say English training to skills training, most English trainers that I know that make the transition focus on things that they have already done on the English world side and moving more into the skills perspective. For example, presentations. So focusing on the language, focusing on the right word choice and so on as they're presenting. And of course, still talking about is the point coming across? Do I find it interesting? Is it clear for me? And so on. Then when we move into the pure skill side, the English word choice isn't as material now. Now we're focusing on things like, was I believable? Did I sound authentic? How can I control my body language? I know I move too much. I use us and ums all the time. How can I stop that? If you can have the credibility, uh, why should they believe you? If you want to sell yourself as a presentation skills trainer, what have you done to help people with their presentations? Are you a good presenter? Can I believe you? Because I can see your presentations and the quality in them. I'll pay you more because I think you'll do more for me. And then the reliability question is being able to deliver the goods in the training. So, okay, if, if I'm moving around a lot and I don't know how to do something about that, can you give me tips, tricks, support so I can fix that? That's what people want to know. And if you give reliably good answers, then that's what it takes for people to think they're, that you're worth the time. So level one, skills. Level two is uh, moving into things like working with teams. How do we function with other people in groups? And then also some of the more difficult individual skills. How do we build trust in general? How do we manage difficult conversations? All of those kinds of things that are more close to who we are, not just what we do. Influencing skills is a piece of that. Decision-making, problem-solving. There are a lot of different ways of doing it right. Level one, there aren't as many ways to do it the right way. Level two, there are lots of ways of solving problems correctly, for example. And what we're trying to do is help people discover their own way. We're not telling them. And we need to help them um, see that they first they can do it, and then here's how you can do it. And then let's practice you doing it here in this safe environment so you can go out into the real world and do it. Leadership is level three because it is the most difficult to pin down. I mean, I've started leadership courses on managing change, for example, and ended up talking about decision-making or ended up talking about influencing or ended up talking about a number of different subjects because they do relate. And when you go into leadership training, you have to be prepared for anything. So those things are, are really demand trainers who know their stuff, have a lot of confidence, can listen, they're, they're not, you know, there to promote themselves or there to really focus on what the needs of the participants are. And they're able to, to meet a lot of those needs, answer a lot of those questions. You don't have to know everything, but you do need to know enough um, to be able to help people quickly and move on to the next thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, if you could 
briefly just give an explanation. I know it's probably not exponential differences, but maybe a multiplier of the different levels for the pay grade for each of those levels. Mm. Okay, I will start with when I, and again, this is time dependent. And as you noted, Gabby, it was a very long time ago when I moved to Germany. So <laughs> I started training in Germany as an English trainer, purely an English trainer. I was probably doing around 150 a day. Level one training is about double that. Level two training, you can add another factor. So it's probably triple that. And level three training, so much of it depends on your specific skill set, experience set, and what people are willing to invest in you. And often that has to do with the level of the people attending the course as well. And it can be uh, several multiples of the level one daily rate. And if you're out there thinking, how can I increase my credibility? I don't have any clients. You can create content to show that you are worth it. I know when I started making this podcast, I was my only client <laughs> in 2020. But if people constantly see you improving your product, you're able to release on time, you're recommending yourself. You can't just have a business card and a website anymore. There's too many options. Absolutely. And it's really cool when you think about what you just described, um, you show that you're credible, that people can see it. Every little promise that you make that you keep adds to your reliability. Absolutely excellent places to start. Show your credibility through the content that you create and show your reliability by keeping your promises. Yeah, that can be a make or break even for movie stars or superstar singers if you're not there for the concert or you're like five hours late people aren't going to remember that <laughs> yes i mean it's the days of people you know waiting for miles davis for half the night and so those are pretty much over there are too many people who can completely get away with that sure things happen but if you have a track record of reliability people will forgive you for the one or two things that that happen that are beyond your control You can do video or podcasts. Another way is to write a book. And that's something that James and I have been working on. He's writing a book, The Six C's of Healthy Hybrid Teens. So we've been working on that. And just tell us a little bit, James, why after all these years are you, are you writing a book for your credibility? You have enough work from referrals. Well, one, I, I like your title better than the one I was thinking. <laughs> we need to take that tape and hold on to it because, oh yeah, that, maybe that's how it should be. My niece just got her master's degree. Shows you how old I am, I guess. My niece just finished her master's degree and is starting her first job. And she's working in the same area that, that I'm in, in terms of human resources, development, leadership, training, and, and so on. If I had an uncle in the business that I'm just going into, what would I want to hear that might make my life easier? I can still sort of remember what it was like graduating from university, going into my first job, knowing that I really didn't know what I was doing, but really trying to do my best. I was lucky that I had a, a military background. I had a lot of 
training and leadership specifically. So those kinds of things help me to ask better questions of myself and to, to look at my own processes. I had a framework for that, but still I was trying to figure out a lot of stuff on my own. And the other piece was, even if you have the people around you, do you know what questions to ask? They don't know what to tell you unless we know what questions to ask. And I didn't really know what questions to ask until looking in hindsight. If there would be a one place where I could advise that they go to start thinking about their own leadership journey in this very challenging time to be a leader, that's what I would want the book to be, a place where new leaders primarily or people who are leading new leaders can go and think about the conditions that they're having to deal with today, which are new, and how they can deal with them effectively and be fully whole and human in the process, successful for themselves, and more importantly, successful for the people they are serving. It's something I'm very excited about. Knowledge work is becoming browner, but a lot of us have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> If we're lucky, we have someone who's the, the generation behind us that can be the uncle, be like, let me sit you down and tell you what you got to do. But some of us are the first ones making that transition to being a knowledge worker, number one, and then being a knowledge worker manager that's managing several different generations at the same time over the internet. It's like, okay. Huge challenges. Absolutely. I mean, I was very lucky. My father was an army officer. His uh, brother, my uncle, was an Air Force officer. I grew up in a, in a military family. There are things about that culture that are centered around leadership. And there was never any question in my mind whether I could lead or not. I knew I could because I had great examples around me of people who I could relate to who were leaders. As challenging as, as things were in their time, um, and they were very challenging, you know, people, the leadership for, especially for um, people like me in the 70s who were the groundbreakers quite often, um, had to deal with a lot of things from their outside environment, not only their internal environment in terms of questioning, can they do it? And being really confident in that process, sometimes not listening to the feedback you get because it may not be fair <laughs> and saying it's valid what you're saying, but uh, I have to accept another truth about myself. And, and they fought through that when it was in your face. Unfortunately, I think that's happening a little bit more often these days than in the past. And it's really unfortunate. And we need to still know how to get through it. And sometimes we get through it because no matter what other people say, we know we're doing something we can live with. And the end of the day, when you look in the mirror, it's what you see in that relationship that you have with that person in the mirror that will sustain. And I think what helps young leaders is to find that stable ground in themselves. Yeah, that's something that Millennials had to relearn because a lot of them, they really put their self-word into their job title. It's like, I'm executive, blah, 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 VP of random made-up department. 
And then when they got laid off, they're like, I'm going to die. That's one thing that Gen X kind of learned from baby boomers. Like, don't do that. It seems to skip a generation. Baby boomers were like that. Millennials were like that. Gen X and Gen Z are like, this is what I do, but it's not who I am. That is such a powerful statement. This this idea of being able to separate what you do and who you are is a very German thing. We don't expect people here to be the same after work as they are at work. These people look at their lives within the work as this is a responsibility that I have to my organization and to my people. And I still have a life that is not connected to my responsibility to this organization and to my people. And there's a kind of live and let live. And that has been really, really powerful. There's this, uh, there's not as much a connection that as we often have in the English speaking world, what you do needs to be the same, or you need to be the same, no matter what you do. There are different ways of looking at authenticity. It can also be specific to the situations we're in. The energy, the tone, all of those things that I take for granted when I speak English, I have to work to bring them into German in order for people to experience me. There was a great Charlie Parker quote, the great saxophonist who said, you practice, 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 and then you forget all that stuff and play. I think a mistake that a lot of people make is instead of playing, they're always acting. So you have to be able to let your guard down and just be like, okay, let's see what happens here. And you're going to ask me about music in a bit. One of the things I've learned about playing music and when do I play it well, I play it well when I'm not in my head. And sometimes that means you have to practice a lot in order to, to know that you have that music. You're not thinking about the lyrics or you're not thinking about the breaks and things of that nature. You know them well enough that now when you're playing with other people, you're just exploring what you're doing together and adjusting to each other and listening to each other. And the focus is creating something in that moment together on the stage that translates to the audience. And when that happens, you get this energy exchange from the stage to the audience and from the audience to the stage. And it can't get any better than that. But in order to get there, we first have to get out of our own way. So let's talk about weekend jeans, Jimmy C. I want to if you're looking at the screen, you guys, off to the side, we have some conga drums and there's a lot of pictures in the background. You can see a whole bunch of books. James has locks. He looks like a very cool jazz musician. <laughs> but how do you balance being an in-demand trainer with being also a semi-pro jazz musician who is a percussionist and also a very good singer, I must add. Thank you. <laughs> Part of it is making time for it. And again, this is something that I really enjoy about the German culture. As a professional, even, we still accept that people have hours. So do I go beyond my, my office hours? Yes, I do all the time, but it's often my choice. It's not like a quiet demand. So I rarely work on the weekends. And so I have evenings to do things like rehearse, which I'll be doing now. But I've got a gig 
a big gig coming up this weekend and then I'll be on vacation and then I have a big gig the weekend after that. So I play two Tuesdays a, a month. That keeps me on stage, which is the best place to, to learn is to be on stage. And all of that keeps me pretty much at a decent skill level. And then sometimes I have to practice even more to, to reach a higher level for certain gigs. And I've had a number of great learning experiences, whether in Cuba or in uh, different places in Africa, here with some instruction. And from time to time, I work with a, a maestro and they polish up my fundamentals again and all of that. On the other hand, I try to keep a, a pretty consistent high level. Nice. So how do you feel that it enriches your life having an, an after-hours life? The immediacy of being on stage. You know when you screw up? Immediately. There's no recovery. I mean, it's, it's like if I miss a lyric or something, it's gone right then and there. In training, if I misstate something, I can always go back and say, oh, what I meant to say was. But on stage, yeah, there's a lot of pressure to get things right and to support the other players around you because you're doing something together. And being able to do that well in a product that moves the audience. You know, it's nice when, when people recognize what you do. And as a percussionist, it's not as obvious as a lead guitarist. It's not as obvious as a lead singer. And uh, when musicians say, yeah, we know what you do. And we know the difference that you make. When musicians say things like, I, I hear you. And when they say it, it means something. It's, it's that I hear what you are bringing to this that uh, wouldn't be there if you weren't there. This idea of having the credentials for whatever it is that we decide to do can feel like there's a time limit. That if I'm not credentialed in this by this time, then it's too late for me because it's quite true. There are always people coming up behind you that are getting those credentials, which is only about a certain style of credibility. It says that, yeah, I can believe what you say because I think the background that you present should, should allow you to say that. But it doesn't mean that you know how to say anything. Having a degree doesn't mean you can play. And so there's, there's another element of that. It's, it's really developing that ability to play, really playing with people who can appreciate what you do, that you learn from them so you can do even more. And when people recognize that you make them sound better, they'll come to you because that's the ultimate credential. That's the ultimate referral. That's the ultimate credential. When someone who another person trusts is willing to give you their support, the most important thing is, can you make the people around you better? If you're open and learning and having a lot of experiences, and this is something that, you know, your generation has far more than, than mine did because of the access that you have. You know, when I grew up, we had three television channels when I was a, a kid and the 
uh, amount of information that you got as a kid was limited. I couldn't read. So, you know, as a very young kid, didn't matter whether we had access to newspapers from around the world, I couldn't read them. But guess what? Today, a three-year-old can go on YouTube and see whatever they want and get all kinds of input and information, even without being able to read yet. You have access to all of that day one. Then you have it in your phone. You know, it's in their hand. You don't even have to go to the library to do that. There are no gatekeepers anymore. You have to be your own gatekeeper. This is a big deal. And being your own gatekeeper, part of this is being willing to question what you think is right, to not only take sources that you agree with, but sources that challenge you and challenge your thinking. You may ultimately decide that, no, that that isn't, uh, the best way, what I just heard. And that perspective may be valid, but I don't take it as true. Okay. To be able to consider it and know when to say, nope, that's not for me, or that is for me, something new that's uncomfortable, but is for me anyway. Those are some of the challenges that, that you face regularly. Be open and don't take discomfort as being wrong. Being uncomfortable can mean you are learning. And that is a perfect ending to a very interesting conversation. James, can you tell us where we can find you online and what's the estimated drop date for this book? <laughs> you know better than I, Gabby. <laughs> that second question is harder than the first. Um, most of the interactions that I have these days are coming through LinkedIn. You'll find me at James Culver Jr. on LinkedIn. And if you're a jazz junkie, you can follow him on Facebook too. Jimmy C, with the C spelled out, C-E-E. -E. Right. <laughs> and, and we'll be playing in uh, regularly in the Frankfurt area. So I, I play uh, once every two weeks. All right. This is very exciting. It's nice to be able to see both facets of a person. Most of the time, we only focus on the professional or even the life experiences of the person. So it's nice to hear about your passion project. Thank you so much for being open to sharing that with us. You're very welcome. And it's, it's, I'm, I'm a lot more relaxed in dress for you to not, not wearing a suit or all that kind of thing. It's really good to recognize that, you know, you can be yourself in a lot of different ways, which is something I think is great for your generation. This real sense of tolerance and openness that you're still you. Uh, whether you're wearing a baseball cap, I do have hair under here, by the way, but it's still, you're still you, uh, whether you're wearing a baseball cap or, or not. Well, guys, keep in mind, do you. But thank you so much for staying with us to the end. This is Gary B for Clever Hybrids, and we'll see you in the next one.